Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's episode summarizes some of the groundbreaking analysis of the business, economic, and technological trends of today to predict what the world will look like in 2030 and how the coronavirus pandemic will accelerate each of these major trends. Some facts and figures from the book. Birthplace of the next industrial revolution, Sub-Saharan Africa. The reason? 500 million acres of fertile yet underdeveloped agricultural land the size of Mexico. 500 million acres. Percentage of the world's wealth owned by women in 2000. 15%. Percentage of the world's wealth owned by women in 2030. 55%. If Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, global financial crisis averted. Worldwide number of people who went hungry in 2017, 821 million. Worldwide, the number of people who will go hungry in 2030, 200 million. Worldwide, the number of people who were obese in 2017, 650 million. Worldwide, the number of people who will be obese in 2030, 1.1 billion. Percentage of Americans projected to be obese in 2030, 50%. Percentage of the world's land occupied by cities in 2030, 1.1. Percentage of the world's population living in cities in 2030, 60%. Percentage of worldwide carbon emissions produced by cities in 2030, 87%. And percentage of the world's urban population exposed to rising sea levels in 2030, 80%. The largest middle class consumer market today. United States and Western Europe, the largest middle class consumer market in 2030, China. And finally, by 2030, the number of people entering the middle class in emerging markets, 1 billion, the number of people currently in middle class in the United States, 223 million, the number of people in the middle class in the United States in 2030, 209 million. Oh, a lot of data there, a lot of work done by our guest today. He is author of 2030, how today's biggest trends will collide and reshape the future of everything. He is Mauro Yen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so very much for having me. I am so out of breath after that, Mauro, and I can only imagine what you're like after compiling that huge amount of data. Let's recognize that before we even get into the book there is so much work involved in this brilliant piece of work that you've produced yes thank you so much i mean i spent about uh, seven years doing the research and also trying out the main arguments in the book uh, you know with audiences around the world uh, so yes it was a uh, very large scale project and of course i'm i'm very happy to you know share with you uh, the insights uh, that came out of it Great news for our audience today. I have a copy of this beautiful book up for grabs, beautiful cover. If you're watching us on YouTube, you'll see it. It's Mauro's background. It's a real one as well. And I have a copy up for grabs. Just sign up for the innovationshow.io newsletter and you can be with a chance to win that. Before we even get started, Mauro, I'd love to, to whet our audience's appetite by giving them an example of how interrelated trends create value. Because at the start of the book, you offer the example of Airbnb, which wouldn't be so successful if it weren't for a number of converging trends 
declining fertility, longer life expectancy, doubts about the future viability of public pensions, expanded use of smartphones and apps, and a growing interest in the sharing rather than owning economies. I'd love if you started with this just to show how these trends are interacting and creating new markets. Yes, exactly. So the whole point of the book is that you cannot look at trends um, in isolation of one another. You have to think laterally. You have to connect the dots. And I think Airbnb, the success of this platform, is a very, very good illustration of this. So essentially, what they realized was that there are two generations in the world now. There's a younger generation of people who don't like to go to the bank. They like to use their phone. People who don't like to stay at hotels. They want to experience uh, the cities or the villages, the locations that they visit in a very different way. Uh, and they don't have um, ownership of assets. But then there's another generation, people in their 50s, in their 60s, who own assets, such as, for example, homes or apartments. And they would like to share them because, as you said, perhaps the problem is that the pension is no longer as uh, good as it was. Or maybe now with uh, longer life expectancies, people didn't anticipate quite uh, much how, how much money they needed for retirement. So I think that's the key. The key is to understand how this demographic, economic, and in some cases, even political trends come together to create a big opportunity. And again, it was these entrepreneurs uh, who founded uh, Airbnb who saw the future, right, and were able to connect the dots. And uh, there you go. You have a multi-billion dollar company now, which is, as you know, publicly listed. Let's get into some of the trends. I mentioned there at the start a huge list of trends that are just fascinating and will blow people's minds. But there's huge opportunity understanding those trends and as you said connecting the dots of how they all interact and let's start where you start the book with where it all starts for us with birth and you start the book with with thoughts on population drought the african baby boom and the next industrial revolution and to get the ball rolling you say for every baby born in the united states 4.4 are being born in china 6.5 6.5 are being born in India, and 10.2 are being born in Africa. Yes, yeah, so essentially what's going on is that Europe and the United States have been the most important economies in the world for 200 years. Uh, but this uh, period in history is coming to an end. And it's coming to an end, of course, because of the rise of emerging markets, but also because of population trends. And you mentioned the number of babies. So in other words, uh, if you have a larger population in some parts of the world, and also they're having more babies, which is what's going on right now in Sub-Saharan Africa, on average uh, 4.2 babies per woman, then of course, it's easy to see how in the future that part of the world is going to become so much more important. So in the opening chapter of the book, what I say is, look, we're no longer going to be able to ignore Africa, right? For the longest time, Africa was like an afterthought. Okay, yes, they have mineral resources, they have oil. Uh, but not a market, not something that, uh, you know, companies around the world uh, would take very seriously. Uh, But now Africa is, uh, by the year 2030, going to become the second biggest region in the world by population, becoming bigger than East Asia. And that includes China, right? So between now and the year 2030, 450 million babies will be born in Africa. So, um, you know, some of your listeners here might be thinking, well, that's going to be a disaster. And of course, it would be a disaster if we don't feed those babies, if uh, Africa cannot educate those babies. But, um, you know, African countries are progressing. Uh, They have an increasing middle class in the cities. And uh, I'm fairly optimistic about the prospects for that part of the world. But we'll see what happens. What is very clear, Aidan, is that we will no longer be able to ignore Africa for better or worse. 
and it presents huge opportunities, as you repeatedly say throughout the book, because sometimes when people hear those stats at the start, they can they can hear the negative because we have a negative bias. But you talk about the huge opportunities in that, and we'll get into that when we talk about the aging population, etc., in particular. But you highlight a very important point at the start of the book, Mauro. You say, modern technology reduces our appetite for sex. The greater number of alternative forms of entertainment that become available to us, the less frequently we engage in sex. Hence, less babies are born. And I loved the great example you gave of the blackout. So we see in surveys uh, of the population in Europe, in the United States, in other parts of the world, the younger, the younger generation of people is actually having sex uh, less frequently than the baby boomers, for example, here in the United States. Uh, but the example of the blackout is what uh, social scientists call a natural experiment. Um, so uh, a few years ago, uh, in the island of Zanzibar, which is part of Tanzania, off the coast of East Africa, there was a power blackout that lasted for one full month. But it just so happens that uh, that island, uh, there are two parts to it. Uh, one part of the island has a connection to the grid. So people in that part of the island went without power for a month. But uh, other parts of the island that are more isolated, perhaps in the interior, they don't have a connection to the grid. So even before the blackout, of course, they were using diesel generators. And during the blackout, they continued to have access to electricity uh, thanks to their diesel generators. So then the question becomes, what happened nine months later? And what happened nine months later is that in the part of the island where they continued to have electricity and therefore people could continue to uh, you know, watch their, fa uh, their most favorite movies on their phones, they were able to connect with social media and so on and so forth, there was no change in the number of babies born nine months later relative to uh, uh, the levels before the blackout. However, in the part of the island where people went without power for one month, there was a 21% increase in the number of babies. <laughs> uh, so this is a natural experiment because essentially you have something that happens unexpected, and then you see a bifurcation in terms of the outcome, depending on whether you had access to power or not. And once again, it's, I think, uh, you know, pretty good proof uh, that when we um, no longer have uh, our gadgets, our phones, uh, when we no longer have access to social media and all of that, then we go back to doing things that uh, we used to do before uh, this digital age. It, it got me thinking, Mauro, because I thought about children, for example, and I thought about how boredom is an opportunity for creativity. And I see it even with my own kids. They're 11 and 8 now. And you see that the boredom, if you let them let them struggle with the boredom for a little bit. They'll come up with something creative and they might do something like that. But when they constantly have something to fill the boredom, like technology, like social media, like Xbox, like PlayStation, it means that they don't get to that creativity. And I, I thought it was an interesting point to add on to this because it's the same thing for that as children. And, and we're actually stifling creativity in the world. Yes, absolutely. Look, uh, technology more broadly can be a force for good or also a force for evil. Um, you know, there are huge advantages. I mean, our lives are obviously so much better thanks to technology. Um, but at the same time, uh, it does change our behavior and it can produce some negative unintended consequences, such as the one that you mentioned. Uh, I don't know whether you remember this um, viral video from a few years ago that a little girl who was used to using a, an iPad was given a magazine, like a printed magazine. 
And she started to try to, uh, you know, move things around <laughs> and to swipe uh, left and right and nothing happened. And then after a couple of minutes, she just threw the, uh, the magazine away, right? Um, so, yes, we have this new generation. They're called uh, the born digital generation. And, you know, I'm not going to say that they're less creative than previous generations, but I think uh, especially at younger ages, I think we need to be very careful and make sure that they are developing all of these other skills. Like, uh, you know, something very simple, like, uh, for instance, adding things up, right? Now, when you have a phone, you no longer need to, you know, multiply things or to uh, uh, figure out how much is 21 plus uh, 13 in your head because you have your phone and you can calculate that. But I think that uh, can produce mental atrophy, right, in one way or another. So I think we need to make sure that the younger generation continues to be you know, a generation that learns, uh, that grows with learning, and not just a generation that is very effective at using technology, but uh, to the detriment of the development in their intellectual abilities. And speaking of children, I wanted to highlight something you talked about in the book. I hadn't heard it phrased this way, the quantity versus quality hypothesis with children. And I'll add here something that you said. You said in 2015, the federal government calculated that the average American family would spend the staggering sum of $233,610 to raise a child until age 17. And that amount can easily double if one includes paying for their college fees. I thought that was amazing. And let's share both of those things because the quality versus quantity argument and the effect that has then on population. Yeah, so the uh, quality versus quality argument in terms of how many children we have uh, is an idea that was first conceptualized back in the 1960s by Gary Becker, an economist uh, who subsequently won the Nobel Prize. And it's a very simple idea. Once upon a time, we used to have a lot of children. And look, it was a gamble because infant mortality was so high that uh, you know people 100 years ago uh, you know, would have uh, six or seven children hoping that four would survive, for instance. Uh, not only that, people needed uh, labor for the family farm. And we didn't have pensions. So people also had uh, children in mind as a way to, you know, pay for their, uh, you, know, old, you know, to support them during their old age. Uh, now that has changed. Now the emphasis is not so much on having a lot of children because we know they will survive if they're born. And also we don't need them as labor in the family farm. But the emphasis is more on quality. And uh, I think uh, the important uh, lateral thinking here is the following, which is that um, the world has become so much more competitive. And if parents now face uh, some kind of a threat, is that their children will not be competitive in this uh, hyper-competitive world. And uh, so instead of um, having um, you know, five or six children, we have fear of them. But then what we do is we invest more of our time and our resources, including our money, on them to give them the best possible opportunities. And that's where that statistic that you mentioned comes in, that the average family here in the United States spends a quarter of a million dollars on each child um, uh, until that uh, child graduates from high school, until age 17. And as you said, it can more than double uh, when you include college expenses. Now, that's the average. There are families in the United States that spend in excess of $1 million on their children. Uh, so, yes, children have become very expensive. And if you believe in economics, the forces of supply and demand, if something becomes more expensive, then you buy fewer units of that. 
So in other words, <laughs> children have more, become more expensive, we're having fewer children. It's just basic supply and demand kind of thinking. You build on this and you talk about then the Chinese one child, one child rule and how the popular slogan economic development is the best contraceptive proved to be a better deterrent to population growth than that rule. And uh, on top of, uh, or in addition to economic development, you have um, access uh, to education on the part of women, right? That also makes a big difference, as you know, because if women stay in school and they go to college, they postpone having their first baby. And so if instead of having their first baby when they are 16, they have their first baby when they are, you know, 29, which is the average here in the United States, then they're not going to have 10 babies or not even five. Maybe they'll have one or two. But going back to China, the important thing in China is that the one-child policy came into effect in 1979. But by that year, the fertility rate had already come down from about six or seven children per woman down to 1.5 or two children per woman. So most of the change was due to people moving from the small village to the city, women getting more access to education, and also uh, just general economic development. Uh, and uh, after 1979, the number continued to come down. But by far the biggest effect of the one-child policy, if you remember, was not so much the reduction in the number of babies in China, but rather the gender imbalance because of very strong cultural preferences for males, for boys, over girls. And so uh, over the last uh, 30 years, what we've seen in China is that 20% more boys than girls have been born. Let's explain some of the correlations, Maro. And people are now, by now, seeing how much work you've put into this book because you can just reel it off all as well. But some of the correlations between how these data interact and interrelate is fascinating. And I loved when you said about the old saying that indeed many phenomena have something to do with the price of tea in China. I found this fascinating. I thought this would be a nice little sidestep to take to explain to our audience. And this is a very well documented uh, phenomenon uh, as to, you know, what um, the one child policy in China, what were the effects? And uh, as I mentioned, it had some effects in China, but actually had even more effects uh, in other parts of the world, especially here in the United States, in the following sense. So in a situation in which, once again, for the last 30 years, you've had 20% more boys than girls in China, that meant that uh, then uh, the, 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 the market for getting married in China became very competitive. It was very difficult for those boys to find a, a woman to marry to. But at the same time, remember, there is enormous cultural pressure in China to get married. This is something that parents always expect their children to do at the appropriate time. And so what happened was that families, parents, in order to make their boy more attractive to the fewer women existing in China, they would save more money, right, for that single child, a boy that they had. And uh, uh, they saved so much money that China, even after taking into consideration the huge amounts of investment that the country has uh, engaged in over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, China ended up with uh, an excess of savings. And uh, in addition then uh, to exporting goods, they also exported those savings. They purchased, for example, vast numbers of uh, US government bonds, of US treasuries. And then in so doing, right, this is the last uh, step here in this lateral thinking, in so doing what happened was that interest rates here in the United States came down and we Americans were able to indulge in consumption through borrowing to a much greater extent than would have been possible without the one-child policy, without the very, very high savings rate in China. 
It's fascinating. And, and you know, anytime somebody hears that saying in the future, they'll think of this great example. And, and you go further here because you talked about in Russia, then for the opposite has happened. There's a deficit of young men because so many of them die prematurely, mostly from excessive drinking. And we're probably going to drive up many of the single men listening to this show are going to be buying to airfare to Russia because the problem appears to be so bad that in some parts of Siberia, the scarcity of men of marriageable age has led women to lobby the government to legalize polygamy. Yes, uh, absolutely. So uh, anthropologists uh, have studied this phenomenon, especially in Siberia, very, very closely. And uh, so in Russia, as you mentioned, um, the situation is very different from the one in China which is that men are given to uh, excessive um, you know, alcohol consumption. And we know that because uh, the rates, uh, mortality rates are due to liver disease are very high in Russia, especially among males. And therefore, you have a deficit of men, uh, which is just the opposite situation as in China. And the anthropologists have documented that in parts of Siberia, this is a particularly acute problem. There's so many more women than men, but there are advantages to being married, right? For example, you get better fiscal treatment and so on and so forth. And so, uh, yes, women are getting together and they're lobbying uh, in favor of polygamy, to legalize polygamy as a way to overcome the problem. Now, as you know, I have a much simpler solution. I think China and Russia should trade with each other. (laughs) And uh, that way... Uh, I think they would be able to overcome the problem. Building on this even further, and and I hope our audience by now has seen how this book is constructed because all these trends build and then they interact with each other. And you say, while populations are not replacing themselves in Europe, the Americas and East Asia, they are growing in sub-Saharan Africa, albeit more slowly than in the past. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is the part of the world that is expanding from a population point of view more quickly. But let's not forget, we also have the Middle East, And we have parts of South Asia, which are also expanding demographically. Now, it's true that in all of those parts of the world, the number of babies per woman continues to fall, but it's still at a relatively high level, especially when compared to China, to Japan, to Western Europe, to the United States, where remember, we are below replacement, right? I mean, the number of babies born uh, per woman over her lifetime is less than two. So therefore we're not replacing ourselves. So we are in effect in a two-speed world when it comes to population. We have a very large part of the world where the population without migration would be shrinking. And we have another part of the world where the population continues to grow. One of the things that comes to mind oftentimes when people think about the increase in population in the world they think actually we're going to overgrow the planet. We're going to have to move to Mars. Elon Musk, everybody's going to be taking his uh, his his flights, his rocket ships to to Mars and live there. But that's not quite the case. And even when people think, oh well, if Africa is growing at a, at a faster rate, there's a problem with overpopulation. I'm, I'm showing a map on the screen here on YouTube, and I want to show, given Africa's size, overpopulation seems unlikely. The continent currently has 1.3 billion people. The other countries on this map have populations that exceed 3.5 billion. And Mauro, maybe you'll speak to this map. I know that a lot of our audience listen to the show. They don't view the show. So maybe you'll explain what we're talking about. When people think about the rapid growth in population in Africa, um, they believe that it's going to be a disaster from an economic point of view. And more importantly, they believe that Africa is going to be overpopulated relative to its size. But nothing could be further from the truth. 
uh, because Africa is an enormous continent. Uh, you see, the maps that uh, we had in our textbooks uh, when we were in high school distorted the size of the Southern Hemisphere and made it appear as if Europe or North America or Russia were really, really big parts of the world. And that's because they were looking at the world from the top down. But Africa is so big that the following countries would fit into Africa in terms of their geography. China, the United States, Mexico, all of Western Europe, India, Japan. So even with all of the population growth that we're going to see in Africa over the next 10 years, even with that, Africa will have fewer people per square kilometer or square mile than China, than India, than the United States, of course, let alone Japan, which is a tiny island with 115 million people. So in other words, Africa does have the resources, certainly has the geography to sustain a much larger population. The problem, of course, is that the economy continues to be backward and that they need to transform agriculture. And, and this is where it gets really interesting for the entrepreneurs and startups listening to the show. Most people believe that the largest business opportunities lie in the service sector and can be pursued through technological platforms or apps that it's all going to be digital world. But you suggest we think laterally about Africa's population growth. Yeah, so Africa's population growth, I think, creates several opportunities. The most important one is how do we feed those babies, 450 million who will be born between today and the year 2030. And that's a challenge. Africa doesn't feed itself today as we speak. And we've had 150 million additional people. Uh, unless something changes in its agricultural sector, it's going to be very difficult. But the good news is the following, that productivity in African agriculture is so much lower by a factor of 40 or 50 than, let's say, in California or in Western Europe or in Israel. So the room for improvement is huge. You can actually feed all of those people who are going to be born in Africa and then some just by increasing productivity, let's say, by 50% or by 100%, by doubling productivity. And African agriculture on average, even with that increase, will still be behind California or Israel. Um, so I think the point here to keep in mind is that the sky is the limit in Africa because uh, there's so much opportunity. And one of them is in agriculture. And by the way, high-tech agriculture is the way to go, which is how they do it in California, how they do it in Israel, with smart irrigation systems, with uh, farmers uh, who are connected to satellite data and can anticipate weather events and so on and so forth. One of the things you talked about interestingly in the book was, for example, using their own produce locally to reinvent some products that we're used to, for example, beer. I think uh, the best way to visualize how African agriculture can be not just um, a source of food, but also the source of a very important input for certain other industries is to think about uh, one crop that came from South America, but is becoming really important in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is called cassava. And cassava is, um, if you want to put it that way, it's a kind of potato, right? And uh, the good thing about it is that it's very resilient to droughts, it's very resilient to extreme weather events. And it can provide not just a source of uh, nutrition for people, but also can become an ingredient in other kinds of uh, processed uh, foods or drinks, including beer, right? So you can make beer with cassava. You can also come up uh, with uh, construction materials based on this uh, root vegetable called cassava. And uh, most importantly, 
the great thing about it is that uh, along the way, you would be creating a lot of jobs. So if somebody is concerned about those numbers of babies in Africa, what kind of employment are they going to be able to find? Well, if you promote agricultural development in the form of, for example, cassava farming, then you would be able to create a lot of jobs, not just in the fields, but also in the food processing industry and even in the construction industry. So I think uh, the future in Africa, to a very large extent, hinges on this what I call agricultural industrial revolution that I think is likely to take place over the next 10 years. We welcome that greatly. And I'm going to park that for the moment. I'm going to park Africa and move on to a different theme that you talk about in the book. And one which is very prevalent in our days today, which is immigration. And one of the things I love about your work, Maro, is it educates us, but is also backed up by decades of data that you've researched and brought together. And Oftentimes when people think of immigrants, they think of, oh, they're coming here, taking our jobs, you're shaking your fist and kind of going, keep those immigrants out, they're, they're keeping our jobs. And international immigration is considered to be a flood in need of containment. The conventional wisdom is that migrants displace blue-collar workers and steal good manufacturing jobs, but the reality is very different. There are so many myths, so many misconceptions about uh, international migration that it's actually very hard to know exactly where to begin. But let me begin in the following way, from the perspective of the United States or Western Europe. So there is this myth that immigrants come in and they compete uh, with the locals for jobs. And that's simply not the case, because most immigrants uh, come with either very low levels of skill or with very high levels of skill. And it is precisely at both ends of the skill distribution where there are so many job openings in the United States or in Europe, right? Most of the locals have intermediate levels of skills. And the immigrants, once again, they come in with either very low or very high levels. So in other words, international migration tends to be complementary rather than to be a competitive factor. And another very, very important myth that I think, uh, you know, I would choose uh, for debunking is that immigrants come in and they don't work. Uh, but rather what they do is they use all sorts of social services, welfare services. And once again, that's uh, simply not true because most international immigrants are people in their 20s, 30s, 40s. They are in their prime age in terms of uh, being able to work. So very few children, very few people above the age of 50 or 60 migrate internationally. It's people in the middle of the age distribution. And when you examine the numbers carefully, both in the United States and in Europe, immigrants make a net positive contribution to the budget, right? In other words, that they pay in taxes, including payroll taxes or social security taxes, more than what they receive in the form of benefits as a group. And once again, that is driven by the fact that most of them are in their 20s, 30s and 40s. It's this understanding of the data that I find really fascinating. And you go further here, you said the anxiety and anger that job losses generate should be more mostly directed at technological change rather than immigration. And you mentioned here your Wharton colleague, Britta Lennon, has found that restricting the number of visas available for scientists, for example, and engineers actually destroys jobs. My colleague, uh, Britta Lennon, uh, has this fantastic study in which she concludes that uh, restricting the number of visas for highly qualified workers in the United States, meaning engineers, uh, scientists, and so on, coming from abroad, is uh, like shooting ourselves in the foot 
Because what happens is that when companies here in the United States realize that they cannot bring in that kind of expertise that they need, what they do is they just uh, shut down the R&D lab here in the United States and they move it to where those people are around the world. So they move it to Europe or they move it to uh, India or to China and elsewhere. So in other words, uh, I think uh, this is another very important point about migration, which is that, uh, look, um, there are two things uh, here that are moving, two moving parts. One is people and the other is companies, right? Companies create jobs. But if companies cannot secure what they need in one location, let's say the United States, they will invest somewhere else. Um, so we need to keep an eye on both of these moving parts, not just on one. So we need to simultaneously consider migrations and migration flows and also what are the kinds of decisions that companies can make because companies are footloose. Companies can move a facility, including an R&D facility, from one country to another. Building on this further, you say the data suggests that as the baby boom generation goes into retirement, the American economy will actually need a further flux of immigrants to cover the demand for dozens of occupations from nursing assistants and health home aides to construction laborers, cooks, and software developers. Uh, look, we find here uh, the exact same phenomenon that I've been talking about. When it comes to highly qualified occupations, right now, between 25 and 40% of the key personnel in the US healthcare system are foreign born. And uh, we just simply don't train enough doctors and nurses and technicians here in the United States. So we need to bring them from the outside. But if we restrict immigration, then we're gonna be in a situation in which we're not gonna have enough people working in our healthcare system, especially at a time, as you know, when the number of people that we have in the United States above the age of 60, above the age of 70, of 80, is growing by leaps and bounds as the baby boom generation um, uh, you know, ages. So in other words, what we need to realize, I think, in a country such as the United States is that um, you know, we need to provide the economy and provide people with the kinds of services, with the kinds of inputs that they need. And in order to do so, it may well be that in not all areas, but in many areas, we will need to bring in labor from abroad. One of the things that you talk about, and, and we've heard great examples of immigrants that have come to the United States, essentially it was built by a lot of immigrants years ago, centuries ago. Absolutely. I mean, this is an immigration country. I guess the only people who could complain are the Native Americans. They got here first. Now, they were also migrants. They came from Asia. Uh, but uh, over the course of the last uh, 400 years, essentially, we've been stealing their land from them. Uh, and as you know, some of these conflicts over land rights and uh, so on and so forth uh, are still very much uh, going on today. Um, but I think uh, the point is the following. Um, there are very few countries in the world that are in a position to attract the best and the brightest. But not only that, also people who have no skills, but that would really like to work very hard, maybe in the fields or in factories or cleaning you know, buildings. So it is a blessing, I think. It's not a problem. It's a blessing that the United States is in a position to attract all of these people across the entire spectrum of skills. That is something that should be a source of strength. Now, having said that, of course, you cannot have an open door policy towards immigration. No country in the world has such a thing. You need to have some regulation 
of immigration. But the regulation should be such that we help the economy, that we help Americans achieve a higher standard of living. And that's where I think uh, you know, our current immigration policy has been failing us for the last 20 or 30 years, because I don't think we have the best possible immigration policy for a country that, as you said, has always been built on the basis of immigration. I'll build on this because I wanted to mention Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, for example, they are supreme immigrant families who came in and created multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar, I should say, business. Apple's a $2 trillion business. Jeff Bezos is the wealthiest man in the world. They come from immigrant stock. And you say about 23% of all ventures in the United States are founded by immigrants. And the, pr the proportion is significantly higher in certain states. For example, 40% in California, 42% in Massachusetts, and 45% in New Jersey. No matter where you look in the American economy, what you see is that entrepreneurs uh, tend to be immigrants uh, or immigrants are overrepresented among entrepreneurs. And this happens at the very low end with uh, dry cleaners, with uh, restaurants, with uh, shoe repair shops, with all of these uh, kinds of uh, undertakings. That's also entrepreneurship. But most distinctively, over the last few years, it has been happening in high-tech entrepreneurship. And you mentioned a couple of examples. There's so many more. Um, you know, there's no company right now, high-tech company in the United States, that is not using immigrant talent in one way or another. Sometimes it's part of its founding team. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, some key employees that they have hired along the way. Uh, but this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, consider Walt Disney Company. Uh, this is the largest entertainment company in the United States, possibly one of the largest in the world. And it was an Irishman, right, who, uh, you know, somebody of Irish stock who founded that company. So, look. There's something really important that I want to uh, uh, say here in this uh, respect, which is that migration is an act of entrepreneurship. You have to take the initiative. So no wonder that immigrants then become entrepreneurs at a higher rate than the local population, right? Because it does take something special for you to migrate from one country to another. It's not easy, right? I mean, you're leaving behind friends and relationships and family, and you come to another country. And so I think uh, that the spirit of entrepreneurship is something that is also very much ingrained in the mind of the immigrant. And that's how exactly uh, a country such as the United States can benefit from immigration by precisely promoting that connection between entrepreneurial, you know, the entrepreneurial drive and migration. I love one last thing on, on migration and immigration you mentioned was the brain drain and that how it can be turned into a virtuous cycle of a brain circulation. Well, the brain drain, as you know, is something that was coined by the British when after World War II, they were losing doctors and scientists uh, to the United States because the salaries were much higher here. Uh, and at the present time, of course, uh, most of the debate about the brain drain has to do with countries such as India. They produce a lot of physicians, for example, but many of them migrate out of India uh, because the opportunities uh, in Europe or the United States or um, more recently in the Gulf, uh, in the Arabian Gulf, are, are so much better than in India. And I think, uh, you know, so that we can all benefit from this pattern, not just uh, the recipient countries who uh, attract those people. I think uh, we should shift towards uh, brain circulation, which is what Annalise Saxini and a professor at Berkeley has proposed, which is that we encourage these immigrants to come here to set up high-tech companies to work, but at the same time also to have a, a relationship with their home countries, to do business with their home countries. And we see this with the diasporas, right? 
with the uh, Taiwanese diaspora, with the Korean diaspora, with the Chinese diaspora here in the United States, the Indian one, that they continue to be uh, in touch with uh, their um, uh, their home countries. Uh, they sometimes uh, found companies uh, that uh, operate in both countries, and therefore they're helping, um, you know, link uh, those economies with that of the United States. So uh, that's what's called brain circulation. And I think that's a really uh, a far more promising kind of uh, trend for the future than the brain drain. Yeah, I love that. It's a beautiful way of framing it. So next, let's, let's start looking at some of the opportunities. We mentioned, for example, some of the opportunities in, in Africa. But there's opportunities from the shift in demographics as well. And after having detailed how 2030 will look, We'll explore now the opportunities embedded in large-scale population changes and how they can be seized. Because next you talk about grey is the new black with tech-savvy senior citizens postponing retirement and rethinking what old is and what young is. And here you start by saying, contrary to conventional wisdom, millennials are not the fastest-growing market segment in the world. That reality lies elsewhere. This is driven by two uh, different trends. So the first one is the decline in the number of births, which means that every generation is now smaller than the preceding generation, right? Um, and then secondly, uh, the growth in life expectancy. If people are living longer, then also those later years in life, when you're in your 60s, your 70s, there's more people around you of the same age. So as a result of that combination of forces, the largest segment of the market beginning in the year 2030 is going to be the population above age 60. It's no longer going to be people in their 20s or 30s, which used to be the case for the last 100 or 150 years. And so brands would always target the younger consumer, people in their 20s, 30s, maybe 40s. But beginning in about 10 years from now, I think brands will have no option but to start focusing on people above the age of 60 because that's going to be the largest segment of the market. So the opportunities to launch new products and services for the gray market are formidably large. The key is understanding how older people will spend their money. And you say quality of life, unsurprisingly, has a high priority. Quality of life is, I think, everything that matters to somebody who turns 60 or 70. Uh, people in that demographic, they want to continue enjoying life. And remember, now a 60-year-old or 70-year-old stays in much better physical and mental shape than a 60-year-old, let's say, 50 years ago. Um, but that's the name of the game for them. So any product, any service that you can think of that gives these people quality of life, the ability to continue enjoying life to the fullest, is something that is going to be in very high demand. That's really going to help. Now, the other thing, of course, that is going to um, you know, continue growing is all sorts of uh, equipment uh, that uh, help people uh, stay healthy. And here, you know, I think the best example is that of... Uh, uh, hospital equipment, uh, for example, to do MRIs or imaging, uh, you know, with a rapidly aging population with more chronic diseases, uh, it becomes really important for people to be tested uh, periodically uh, before they actually have a problem. And that's why companies such as GE here in the United States or Toshiba in Japan, Siemens in Germany, or Philips in the Netherlands, which is a company that I analyze in the book more in depth, they decided to stop making light bulbs you know, where the margins are very, very thin, and in any case, a low-cost producer can always outcompete you, to making uh, these uh, very sophisticated pieces of equipment uh, that we call MRI machines, right? Magnetic resonance imaging machines, uh, where the margins are really big, where the name of the game is R&D. Uh, you have to incorporate technology. 
and where, by the way, you make more money on the servicing of those devices rather than on the sale of the devices themselves. Um, so what we see is that this trend towards population aging is compelling a lot of companies, such as Philips, for example, to reinvent themselves and to exit certain lines of business and allocate all of their resources, all of their investments to other more promising lines of business. I absolutely love the example of Philips. It's a total reinvention story. But there's other opportunities as well. And I'd love if you'd give just an overview because there's so much in that chapter there that we're not going to get through. But let's give an overview of some of the opportunities for people. The other big opportunity that I see in the so-called gray market for people above the age of 60 has to do with automation and with robotics. So we were focusing earlier on the quality of life. Uh, but, you know, it gets uh, you know, to a point in life when you can no longer lift, for example, your shopping bag from the floor to the countertop in the kitchen. And so robotics or automation can play a very important role there. As you know, there's a company right now that has a mobile robot that uh, brings the groceries uh, you know, uh, from the store with you. So you only have to walk as opposed to also carry the groceries. So I think automation in all of its forms, especially in the home, um, is going to be a big field for companies. Once again, targeting these consumer above the age of 60, 70, 80, that wants to continue enjoying quality of life, living at home as opposed to at a nursing home. But, uh, you know, they don't have the ability any longer to perform certain tasks by themselves. So automation, I think, in the future is going to be another really important field. Let's park the grey market now and move on to another huge societal shift, which is the massive shift in percentage of the world's wealth owned by women. We mentioned in the intro in, 20, in 2000, it was only 15%, but you estimate that in 2030, it's going to be 55%. Look, what's going on with women is really behind most of the trends that we've been discussing. For example, the decline in the number of babies has to do with better access to education on the part of women. But then those women, of course, work outside of the household. They pursue careers. They make their own money. They save their money. By the way, they're better investors on average than men because they don't change their investments as frequently and they have more of a long-term perspective. And so what's going to happen is that between now and the year 2030, we're going to see massive change in terms of who owns the net worth of the world, who owns property, who owns wealth. And for the first time, by the year 2030, we're going to see that more than half of the world's wealth or net worth will be owned by women. And by the way, there's another trend that is contributing to this, which is that women, as you know, live longer on average than men. So therefore, they're more likely to inherit from their spouse or from their partner than the other way around. So it's the uh, you know convergence of these two processes. Women now have better access to labor market opportunities because they have better access to education on the one hand, and then on the other, that women on average live longer than men. This builds to what you said in the intro as well about Lehman Brothers. If it had been Lehman Sisters, the global financial crisis may have been averted altogether. Correct. And uh, let me quote uh, Oscar Wilde, the Irish playwright. <laughs> uh, in one of his plays, uh, you know, one of the characters says uh, that, uh, you know, women try their luck, men risk theirs, right? And essentially, the argument here is that, uh, of the observation, is that women are more risk-averse. Uh, but, you know, being risk-averse when it comes to making the most out of your money over the long run, investing your savings in the best possible way, it's a very good principle to follow, okay? 
And uh, therefore, that's why I think also the accumulation of wealth by women will accelerate over the next few years. I, I love the way these trends converge and how there's often more than one trend contributing towards this, this uh, the shifts that we're seeing, this tectonic plates of disruption that we're seeing. One of the other ones I mentioned in the introduction was on the one hand, we're seeing a, a spurt, a massive growth in obesity throughout the planet. And then on the other hand, we're seeing a decline in hunger. This is one of the most important paradoxes, I think, in the book. Um, we have been, I think, in the world very, very effective at reducing the number of people who cannot feed themselves. Uh, so, in other words, who go hungry. And as you know, most of the improvements have taken place in emerging markets, such as China or India, uh, but also many others around the world, and also in Sub-Saharan Africa. But at the same time that we have been reducing the number of people who go hungry, we have seen another, you know, unintended consequence of economic development reach extremely high levels, very alarming levels, and that's obesity, overweight and obesity, to the point that, yes, I mean, we're entering a world in which we're gonna have more people who qualify as being obese than people who go hungry. And the reason is that as the middle class grows, then people start eating more protein. They start eating more processed foods and soft drinks, and those are really bad for your weight, for your waist. Uh, not only that, we become more sedentary. We're no longer plowing the fields. We're no longer moving around. We're working at an office. And so it is the combination of all of those things that essentially are producing this highly unusual situation in which we have more people who are obese than people who are going hungry in the world. Yeah, I love that. It's a beautiful way of framing it. So next, let's, let's start looking at some of the opportunities. We mentioned, for example, some of the opportunities in, in Africa. But there's opportunities from the shift in demographics as well. And after having detailed how 2030 will look, we'll explore now the opportunities embedded in large-scale population changes and how they can be seized. Because next you talk about grey is the new black with tech-savvy senior citizens postponing retirement and rethinking what old is and what young is. And here you start by saying, contrary to conventional wisdom, millennials are not the fastest growing market segment in the world. That reality lies elsewhere. On top of that, you talk about the urbanization. So there's a shift towards cities as well, probably because of jobs, but a lot of other factors are at play. I'd love if you'd share this one as well. The growth of cities is also very important here because once again, people in the city, they use public transportation, they're moving cars, they're not walking as much, they have uh, more sedentary lives. And then the other issue, once again, is that uh, when people move to the city, they acquire very bad habits. They start smoking, they start drinking more, and they start eating more snacks, more processed foods. The diet of people in the city is much worse than the diet of people in the countryside. Maro, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the, the effects that's going to have then on the economy as well. The growth of cities um, is uh, really, really important in terms of uh, our economic evolution. Uh, you see, uh, globalization takes place primarily in cities, right, that are connected to one another. And cities, as I mentioned in the book, are growing at a rate of 1.5 million people per week. Every week we have an additional 1.5 million people living in cities in the world, which means urban consumers. And this is something that has come to characterize the economy. We are, as you know, in a consumer economy. Here in the United States, 70% uh, of gross domestic product is domestic consumption. And most of that is the urban consumer, the urban middle-class consumer. 
with all of the peculiar habits that that kind of a consumer has. So really, the growth of cities and the growth of the middle class, that has created this new economy we live in now in the 21st century. One of the things I wanted to talk about as well is we, we hear about climate change and due to many biases or not seeing the imminent danger that that represents, we, we just don't act on it. And many of us can make very small changes that accumulate to make big changes, but we don't. And I felt the data that you present in the book is alarming. And you say that percentage of the worldwide carbon emissions produced by cities in 2030 will be 87%. And the percentage of world's urban population exposed to rising sea levels will be 80% in 2030. That's in nine years. The problem of climate change is essentially an urban problem because cities account for a disproportionate share of all of the carbon emissions. Cities are very energy uh, intensive and people in cities also are very wasteful. And so it is true that climate change can be tackled through technological innovation and also through governmental agreements. But I think that we also need to change as consumers. We're very wasteful. Uh, Just to give you an example, here in the United States, the Department of Agriculture estimates that about 30% of the food that reaches the consumer, and those consumers, of course, are mainly in the big cities, uh, about 30% of that food is wasted. It's never eaten. And agriculture is the single most important contributor to carbon emissions through the process of production and then the transportation of the food, mainly to the cities. So in other words, if we could reduce that uh, level of waste, let's say we could cut it in half from 30% to 15%, that would probably knock off about uh, 5 or 6% of the total carbon emissions in the world. Just that, right? If we were uh, able to be a little bit more careful about how much food we buy and how much in the end we waste. There's one more kind of dual trend that, I, that I'd love to cover, Maro, and then perhaps we'll look back on them all and say, how is the pandemic affecting these changes and how is it affecting things within your book as well? Because you, you mentioned that as well, which is really fascinating. But the other shift that I mentioned in the introduction was the largest middle class consumer in the market today is the US and Western Europe. And now the shift is moving towards China in 2030. So this is uh, the direct result of the growth of emerging markets. And of course, um, they have more population than we do. So the richer they get, the larger their market. And eventually, by the year 2030, China will be the largest consumer market. And shortly thereafter, maybe 15 years further down the road, India will become the largest market in the world because they have a younger population. So I think this has, uh, broadly speaking, two major implications. One is that brands will now focus more of their attention on the Asian consumer. So for the longest time, the last 100 years, they've been focusing on the European and then the American consumer when it came to launching or designing new products and services. But now that's going to shift. And the other thing that is going to change is governmental regulation. As you know, there's something called product standards, and governments issue those product standards. Now, right now, there's only two governments in the world that can impose their product standards on the rest of the world, and that's the US and the European Union, because they are the largest markets, and every company, every brand wants their products to be approved by those regulators. But uh, within a few years, I think uh, Chinese product regulations will also become global in scope. And a little bit later, also the Indian regulations. So a lot of things are going to change in consumer markets and also in terms of the regulation of those consumer markets as a result of the growth of the Asian consumer uh, economy. 
I mentioned the amount of work that you put into this book. This is decades of work. And Mauro, for audiences, a prolific writer. So he has other books that are all available as well. So there's all that data and all that knowledge and all the dots are connected. But then along comes the global pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic. And that surely has had an impact on these, on the data that you've produced. Even for example, for example, one of the things I heard is global carbon emissions is down because there's not as many air, air flight, people aren't traveling as much, et cetera, et cetera. I'd love if you give just a general overview of how the pandemic has impacted and accelerated each of these trends. So the COVID-19 pandemic is very different from other pandemics that we've had in history and also from other major economic crises that we've had, like uh, the Great Depression. You see, the Black Death, uh, and that was in the 1300s, or the um, uh, more recent uh, influenza pandemic uh, at the end of World War I, uh, these were events that kind of um, derailed pre-existing trends. Uh, they changed the course of history. Uh, but that's not the case with COVID-19. COVID-19 is just the opposite. It's not a change in paradigm. COVID-19 is an acceleration of pre-existing trends. And let me just give you three or four examples. The first one is the number of babies. So the number of babies was declining before the pandemic. But you see, whenever there is such a big economic uncertainty as the one that we're going through right now, what young couples do is they postpone making big decisions, including, for example, having babies. And the mere postponement of having those babies essentially accelerates the decline in the birth rate. So that's one example. Another one is inequality. I think uh, inequality is obvious to everyone that was growing before the pandemic, in fact, uh, for the last 20 or 25 years. But the pandemic has accelerated that. Inequality by income level, inequality by uh, gender, inequality by race and ethnicity. For example, as you know, uh, the government announced that two and a half million women here in the United States have withdrawn from the labor market because they don't have enough time to pay attention to their children and at the same time work, right? And that is a disaster, of course, because maybe the men, the fathers should be doing more, but it's the women, right? So it is increasing the um, uh, underlying gender inequality. And the most obvious example of an acceleration as a result of this pandemic is the use of technology. So we're now using technology to an extent that I don't think anybody anticipated, but it's a continuation of a trend, right? Uh, so now we're using technology to play, to work, to learn, uh, to communicate and so on and so forth to a much greater extent than before the pandemic. I think uh, the use of technology has grown over the last uh, year, um, you know, um, to such an extent that normally it would take like five years for that growth to happen. Mauro, you've mentioned the, the term lateral thinking several times throughout our conversation, and it really did that. It really made me think widely about it's not as simple as black and white. Everything is inter interconnected. Everything is complex and you need to understand the different data trends. I also thought about how artificial intelligence is going to impact things as well, because I thought about your work and the amount of data crunching you must have done. And then I thought about, imagine when artificial intelligence is at, it's so developed that those data points can be showing you the trends. And then all you're doing is interpreting the trends. I'd love just a, a your 10 cents on that, on how you see that working out for the world. Artificial intelligence, I think, is going to create a revolution, uh, but not of the kind that would eliminate human beings from the planet in the sense that uh, we would no longer need to think. Um, I believe that artificial intelligence has potential, especially in terms of um, 
making human beings um, more um, useful in the way in which they can be useful while letting machines perform some other kinds of uh, tasks or duties for which they are better suited. For example, driving a car or driving a truck. But I don't see artificial intelligence as a substitute for human beings. Having said that, the tools that are being developed for artificial intelligence are just uh, incredibly effective uh, and revolutionary. Uh, but like with every technology, we need to be very careful because artificial intelligence can be a force for good. It can uh, liberate us from certain kinds of tasks that are boring. Uh, but it can also, uh, for example, uh, generate discrimination. As you know, companies, for example, are now using artificial intelligence to select workers. But apparently, there are a lot of built-in biases in those algorithms that are being used. And this is just an example. As you know, the police is also using artificial intelligence, face recognition, and so on and so forth. Um, well, that has also been proved to um, you know, produce discrimination. So we need to be on the alert. I think, yes, the promise of artificial intelligence is huge, uh, but we need to be careful about those unintended consequences. And also, I think we should think we should be considering artificial intelligence to be a complement rather than a substitute for human beings. Beautifully put. And Mauro, I just want to remind our audience, I have a copy of this brilliant book, hard copy here in my hands, up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in a chance of winning a copy of that. In the meantime, I'm going to finish up with a quote that I pulled from the book that I loved. And I'd love you to think about maybe your parting message for our audience. And before I even quote this, where can people find you first, Mauro? Where can people connect with you, find out more about your work, about your work in Wharton College, etc.? So I would love to continue the conversation with uh, your listeners. Uh, I have a website, uh, Guillen, my name, M-A-U-R-O-G-U-I-L-L-E-N, all one word, dot com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I would very much like to get connected to you on LinkedIn. And you can also follow me on Twitter, of course. Brilliant. And I'll share the links to all those data points you mentioned there. So here's the paragraph that I want to finish off with, and then I'll leave you to sign off today's show. I love this one. You said, we're at an unprecedented juncture in history. Several generations of relatively similar size are sharing the stage and competing for influence. Generations matter because they behave in specific ways, but related both to when they became of age and to their situation at the current moment. The creation of a worldview is the work of a generation rather than an individual, wrote novelist John Dos Passos. But we, each of us, for better or worse, add our brick to the edifice. I absolutely love that. And I it just made sense to me. And I just wanted to share it as my parting message. And over to you, Maro. How would you like to sign off today's show? That quote from John Dos Passos, one of my favorite writers, is, uh, is really illuminating, I think. But my parting words um, can be summarized, I think, uh, into two points. So the first one is, uh, I would urge everyone to accept the reality of change. We're going through a major transformation. And if anybody tells you that, no, this is fake news, don't believe them. And also, if somebody tells you that you can turn the clock back, and we can go back to where we were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. That's not possible either. That's not the way history works. That's the first point. So to recognize, to accept the reality of change. The second one is to get prepared for what's coming. And uh, in order to do so, you need to start making decisions. But let me tell you, never make a decision that is irreversible. That for me is the golden principle. 
you need to preserve flexibility. You need to keep your options open. Never, ever make a decision that runs you into a corner. Because whenever so many things are changing, you need to be flexible. You need to be able to respond to the ongoing changes. So that would be my twofold message to your listeners. Author of 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, Mauro Ian. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.